Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to him, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, for what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person." And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately... He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. 
Um, all right, I want to start by asking you to think of a moment that you felt hopeless. So happy night tonight. When's a moment that you felt hopeless? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe for you it's easy. Maybe for you it's hard because it has been a while. Maybe for you it's hard because you don't like to acknowledge those feelings. But when, when have you felt hopeless? Um, hopelessness, in general, uh, is a feeling that most people associate with jobs or school or when you look at the state of the world around you, or political climate, or stems from just, just some feeling, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, sometimes, most of the time, often, hopelessness stems from this idea, I'm unable to fix something. Is that fair? I'm, a, I'm a unable to do anything about that. I'm unable to make this better. I'm unable to fill in the blank, and we start to feel hopeless. Is that fair? Um, hopelessness, as, as a rule, again, these are generalities, but it's, it's, it's an increasingly prominent state of mind that people are acknowledging more and more over these past few years. Um, and this is especially true statistically among, quote-unquote, younger folks, which by most definitions is anyone 30 and under. So I know that's not everyone in the room, but that's some of us in the room. Um, a 19, no, not 19, 2021 Harvard study so it's got to be right. It's Harvard. They're smart. Um, so that 51% of 18 to 29-year-olds, over half of, of 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S. feel hopeless. Um, a friend of mine works in student life at a private university in a different state, and, and they did this past semester a weekly poll of all the students on campus and said, what's your overarching feeling? Um, interesting poll. Um, hopeless or anxious were the number one answer every single week of the fall semester, followed closely by feeling either overwhelmed and or exhausted, which is un not, not unrelated, right? Hopeless, anxious, exhausted, overwhelmed, it kind of is a, is a mix that goes into the same cake. Um, there's an interesting tidbit, I tried to find where I heard this, it was from a, from a conference session at one point that I heard um, on Gen Z, who is anyone born about, about mid-1990s and younger, um, it showed some light on this kind of predicament we find ourselves in. And, and, and what this speaker was saying is that, that Gen Z, Generation Z, Generation Z, excuse me, has the greatest access to information than any generation at their age. They can Google or YouTube anything. We can Google or YouTube anything. And yet has less experience doing anything with that information than any generation. Make sense? So you can get on, watch somebody else do it, think you know how to do it, but then if somebody gave you the same exact tools or whatever, statistically, would have a harder time knowing what to do. So we have information overload and yet experiential underload, and so it makes us feel trapped, makes us feel anxious, makes us feel like we should be able to do this. I saw it. I have the information. Why, why can't I do it? I should be able to fix this. I should be able to fix that. I should be able to build this. I should be able to correct that because I have the information, but I don't have the experience. And, and so it's common in that moment, you think you should be able to, to feel some sort of shame, feel, feel some sort of anxiety, you feel hopeless about yourself. Does that resonate with anyone? Again, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't even have to half nod, but... When we feel then hopeless about ourselves, what's the common response? Well, we look for hope. Somewhere outside ourselves. If we can't find hope in here, we've got to look for hope out there. It's kind of the only two options. 
But in case you've lived under a rock for the last few years, turns out a lot of the common places that historically people, and especially Western people, have, have put our hope now look equally hopeless. Is that fair? Friends and family relationships, close relationships, again, statistically, you may not experience this, but statistically, and as, as a culture, friends and familial relationships feel more distant now than they have in recent decades. A society feels and is more divided than in recent decades. Um, leaders, whether organizational or governmental or job or school or even religious, seem more domineering or distant one of the two, than in recent decades. And so we're left in this spot where if we look inside and try to find hope in ourselves, often we're let down. And if we look outside and try to hope, find our hope in other things or people, we're let down. Ourself lets us down. Other people let us down. Culture lets us down. An overarching feeling of hopelessness can pervade. And, and there's another thing, there's another factor, another, another domain of society that folks have looked to historically, like we look centuries, over the centuries past, people have looked to this other domain of society to find hope, and yet today, folks are finding that this other domain of society is equally letting us down, making us feel hopeless, making us feel anxious. Do you know what it is? Religion church, things of faith. Um, I had the opportunity to sit with a couple hours with a group of uh, local church leaders and staff who are under 30. I felt really old um, this week. Um, but they were saying, and I was just there to, to learn and listen and facilitate a conversation, but, but they were saying that the common view of the church and Christianity among their peers Again, millennials born in the mid-90s, and the, or uh, millennials in the upper Gen Z born in the mid-90s, and even more so, common view among those they're ministering to, younger Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which is apparently a thing. Again, I'm real old now. I don't know. They look at the church, they look at Christianity and say things like it's unnecessary, it's hypocritical, I can pick and choose from that, and I can pick and choose from whatever other philosophy makes me feel whatever it is I feel like I need to feel. It's out of touch. And that's true both among young Christians, folks who would call themselves faithful, and not surprisingly, maybe even more so among folks who wouldn't call themselves Christians. So the church, this thing we're doing and say that, that we're a part of and that we value also feels increasingly hopeless. So yeah, it's a happy night tonight. <laughs> Welcome to Salt and Light. Everything is hopeless. But be honest with me a little bit. Like, do you, do you feel that? Do you experience that? Either in yourself or as you look at family members and friends and people you know, does, do you feel hopeless and that you can't offer yourself hope? Does society feel hopeless and can't offer you hope? Does even religion feel hopeless and unable to offer you hope? Uh, we're re-entering the Gospel of Mark today. Um, if you weren't with us in the fall, we, we did chapters 1 through 6 before Advent. Um, today we're going to be in chapter 7, and then we're going to end the Gospel of Mark on Easter. 
Um, and part of our hope, part of our, our overarching words that we say a lot as, as, as a little church family is that we want salt and light, and we're asking God to make salt and light a group of people who are increasingly with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Uh, and so Mark is a overt look, one of a few that we have in the Bible, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so tonight, as we enter back in, and, and Gabe read our text for us, but as we enter into Mark 7, there's, there's three scenes and then some kind of explanation in the middle of it. Um, in the first scene, um, starting with, with verse 1, um, there's these supposedly righteous religious leaders whose hope is misplaced. Supposedly righteous religious leaders whose hope is misplaced. And then, and then toward the end of the chapter, the last half of the chapter, you see the second and third scene where these supposed outcasts, there's these rejects whose hope is in the right place. Supposedly righteous folks with hope in the wrong place, supposed rejects with hope in the right place, in the only real place. The first group, the Pharisees and scribes, they're at the top of the societal food chain they're at the top of the religious food chain, and yet they totally miss the point. And then, and then you have these other folks who are in the desperate depths of despair and utter need, and they get it. And, and maybe for some of us, that's, that's helpful as we consider hope and hopelessness. When everything else lets us down, Maybe that's when the fog lifts and, and we find Jesus to be our right hope. So Gabe just read this, but there's contrasts. In verses 7 through 13, there's these Pharisees and scribes, religious rulers, tons of wealth and status. They're supposed to be the teachers of the law, and they care deeply about rituals and religious cleanness. And then this woman, a woman, who is be a Gentile, who C has an unclean daughter. So that's like a trifecta of uncleanness. And then this deaf man who's an outcast rejected by society. They get it. So kids, if you're listening, kids, who should know the right place to put their hope? Like the respected religious leaders? In your heart. In your heart? I, yeah, that's what they should say, right? So who, who should get it? The respected religious leaders or the unclean rejects who are not part of God's people? Who should know the right answer? Group one or group two? Group two. is not what you'd think of who knows the right answer. You'd think that like the religious leaders would know where to find hope, how to point to Jesus' hope, but it's not those. Jesus should be in your heart, but for them... They weren't worried as much about what was in their heart. They got it backwards. And so here's the key. This is what's on the screen. The religious leaders thought and taught that hope was based, their hope was based on what they could do themselves. God's view of hope is to desperately ask God what we can't do on ourselves. Religious leaders thought and taught that hope was based on what they could do for themselves. But God's view of hope is to desperately ask God to do what we can't do ourselves. So religion and the religious leaders then got it backwards. And a lot of elements of religion and religious leaders today still get it backwards. So again, here's, here's how some of that looked in the Gospel of Mark. Here's verses 3 and 4. It'll be on the screen. 
the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come back from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Hey, kids, again, got another question for you. Why do you wash your hands before you eat dinner? To get clean. Are your hands dirty before dinner? You ever go play in the mud? Sometimes. So should you ever go like eat dinner before you wash all the mud off your hands? Do you? Do you do that? Do you eat without washing your hands? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. All right, you're not liars. That's a good thing, yeah. We wash our hands traditionally because there's physical germs that can make a healthy person physically sick, right? The leaders, the religious leaders at the time were seeing religious actions the same way, just through a spiritual lens. It's kind of like they're, they're if you will, There's like spiritual germs all around us. And so if you do the right things and kind of wash the spiritual germs off your hands, you can be spiritually healthy. You won't get spiritually sick. Uh, Jess went to a birthday party last night, and she was thirsty, and they had a lot of Evian water there, not something that we frequent in our house. It's good French water. Um, And so we were joking this morning, like, hey, if mom's a little snooty today, it's because she drank a lot of Evian last night. Um, and, And that's kind of how... The religious leaders were viewing sin, spiritual health. If you just do the right things, it'll be okay. But things come into us from outside of us and contaminate us, like French water. I'm fine with French. That's fine. They relied on traditions and rules and actions. They relied on things that they could do to keep themselves right before God. Is that God's way? Is that true? That's not the message of the scriptures. And so Jesus explains their wrong thinking in verse 6. It'll be up here. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. So they built fences around the word of God to try to keep themselves looking holy. And then over time, they would build fences around those things and they would promote those things as like, this is the only right way to do it. If if we were to fast forward to today and thank God, there's no one who ever does this, it would say, to be truly right with God, you have to do this exact thing. Maybe you have to vote this exact way. You have to stand up for this exact thing. You have to believe this exact way. You have to look exactly like this mold. Again, praise God that doesn't happen today in religion, right? We teach as the traditions of man. We teach the traditions of man as if they were God's commandments. You make it seem like you seek God and do right, but, but inwardly their heart was all about themselves. They were self-reliant It's what they could do themselves. Their hope was in themselves. They replaced the ways of God with their own ability. And I know I'm I'm camping out on this, but I need us to see the, the danger of this misplaced hope. Because in case you didn't pick up on the sarcasm, it is just as prevalent in faith circles today as it was then. I can fix it. I can do right. I can make myself whole before God. I can keep God's rules. I can make a good life for myself. I am my hope. 
is what the religious leader's view was. And again, just to contrast this, what was the posture of the unclean Gentile woman, the deaf man and his friends at the end of the chapter, the folks who, who should be utterly rejected, who, who weren't even allowed to worship in the places where the religious leaders were trying to keep things looking pretty and pure? I can't fix it. I can't do right. I can't make myself whole before God. I can't keep his rules. I can't get myself to a good life. I can't. I am hopeless. And to look at their posture and just, again, contrast it with the pride of these religious leaders. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of Jesus and came and did what? fell down at his feet. You know this posture. This is not a prideful posture. This is a posture of desperation. I can't. I need you. She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Again, a reject, an outcast, someone who, who shouldn't by any logic be pursuing God at all. And yet she begged him. Again, not a prideful posture. Maybe one of the most humble postures we can ever adopt. Begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And then the man, a few verses later, they brought to him one who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they did what again? Begged him. I need you. We can't. We've tried. He can't. He's tried. There's nothing in me that can fix this. Nothing I've tried can make it right. We need you, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He does what no other person could do. He did what no other source of hope was able to do. He healed both. He restored both. Verse 30, the woman went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone. Verse 35, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Y'all, Jesus, this is the theme of this chapter, Jesus is our only hope. There's a couple of confusing moments within this chapter um, that are worth exploring a little bit, if we can take a sidebar for just a moment. Um, The first, did you pick up on this? Jesus calls a woman, what? Calls a woman a dog. Does that sound mean? And and we have to read that fact in light of what we know to be true, what the scriptures teach us about Jesus from from start to finish, that Jesus never sinned. Jesus always loved people. And so that that seems confusing. Does that seem confusing to anyone? Um, There's tone and cultural nuance that get lost here. And so people have tried to explain it in different ways. Some said Jesus was testing the woman's true faith. Was she really putting her hope in Jesus? Um, The answer was already yes, because what had she already done? She had already thrown herself at his feet. She was already begging Jesus. And so it was already pretty clear that she was, she was putting her hope in him. Other people say that it was a softer term, like, like puppy, which women, if you were called a dog or a puppy, does it feel all that much different to you? Okay, right. Yeah, so, so e- even if that were the case, it's, it's not exactly like, oh, yeah, that makes, it all, that makes it all just fine. If Jesus wasn't mean, if he's not testing the woman, if he's not softening her and calling her like, oh, so cute, there's got to be some alternate explanation. And, and here's what was going on as he was, 
he was using a term that, that the folks who were supposed to be God's people would use as they talked against people of another race. And so he was using it in order to, to drill down and show the depth of hypocrisy that was going on. Some of what, what Jesus says to, to even the woman is like, I'm supposed to come first for the Jews. God had a, a, a people through the old covenant, and Jesus was first supposed to come to them. They were the folks who were supposed to know. Again, the religious leaders were those that Jesus was first sent to. And the woman says, but, he, but even... Even the dogs at the table receive the scraps if the kids don't want it. And what they're saying, what she's saying is like, yeah, you were sent to them, but guess what? They, they're rejecting you. They don't believe in you. I'm here and I need you. Jesus is saying in sight of his Jewish disciples a word that other Jews use to prove how prideful the Jewish leaders were the people who called Gentiles dogs didn't get him. They didn't understand true hope. But the one who they despised, the one who was the recipient of the name calling, the one who was degraded and looked down on, she was the one who did get it. The, the one who was mocked got it, while the ones who did the mocking missed it. And again, I don't want to read too much in, but the followers of Jesus today and religious people today, we do a really good job mocking others, don't we? And I wonder if in some of our derogatory comments and speech and hate and division and this kind of stuff, if we miss some of the heart that the people that are earnestly seeking actually pick up on if they cut through all of our religious stuff and see Jesus for who he is. Jesus' point is that the leaders are mocking people, but they have the wrong hope. The one who is mocked has the right hope. There's also this, this undercurrent that goes throughout Mark that we just need to mention every now and then. Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Yeah, he came first to the Jews, but more and more we're going to see outcasts and rejected and folks of other faiths and other ethnicities and even other religions and this kind of stuff coming to him. And he's a Messiah for all people. That's, that's revolutionary. Anyone then, anyone now can find their hope in Jesus. The second confusing moment is that after he heals this man and proves that he's the best place to put his hope in, in verse 36, it's not going to be on the screen, but in verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Why would Jesus tell people, don't, 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 don't share this, don't talk about this? And then why would people not do it? Is that confusing? At the very least, they couldn't stop talking about it because they just saw what nothing else, no one else, no other power on earth could do. But Jesus asked him not to share because at least, there's other thoughts on this, but at least Jesus was guarding against his reputation becoming that of just a physical healer. They, they didn't want people to come to him just as a, as a sideshow, as someone who can make things happen just, just on the outward side of things because why? This whole chapter, Jesus is talking against just outward kinds of faith just outward kinds of displays. 
the rest of Mark, his work is going to be increasingly internal, hearts and souls. It's increasingly spiritual. The hope he offers is increasingly spiritual. Jesus offers the greatest hope on earth, and so he doesn't want to slip into this world that sees, oh, just fix this on the outside. Just make this look better externally. He wants to be seen for who he is. So let's pause there. Anything else that you noted? Anything else that this, as you read? Again, we're, we're getting back into this, so I'll assume we're a little rusty on reading coming into each week, but we want to pause every week and just say, hey, did you notice anything? Did the Spirit spark anything as you read? Was there anything that stood out or the Spirit brought to your heart, soul, mind, or strength as you read this week or even as we're talking about it now? Anything, God? Yeah, the whole theme of this chapter, and really, the whole theme of the scriptures, <laughs> that there's this upside-down kingdom. And yeah, I love that you said this. We would be well advised to just pause and go, where, where are we in this kingdom? What are we pursuing? What, what's the kingdom looking like that we're after? It's, that's good. Did I summarize that okay? Yeah. 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 The persistence of, as you say, that holding your yeah. few month old. Yeah. The heart of a mother for her daughter and persistence and saying, yes, but God, even, even if you didn't come for us, like I'm, I'm here. I'm, I do believe. It's good. Anything else? So three scenes. Massive contrast here. The religious leaders thought the world outside them was bad. They could wash it off. They were good as long as the sin germs didn't come in. Their hope was in their religion. Their hope was in their tradition. Their hope was in their actions. And so again, some of us are like those religious leaders. Um, even, Even in some Christian church circles, whatever you want to call that, it's common to hear things like, well, guard yourself from Satan. Watch out for the sinful world around you. And, and, and there's a degree. Let's not swing, swing the pendulum too far. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Satan and, and the world both offer plenty of temptations. But look at verse 15 with me and see the core of Jesus' teaching on all this. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. That is the core of this upside-down kingdom. What's Jesus say? He says, yeah, there's temptation out there. But sin, where does sin live? Does sin just live outside of us? The world is full of temptation. Satan is a tempter, but where does sin itself reside? In here, in us, in the core of our being. All, all that Satan, the tempter, all the world, all that temptation can do is awaken and draw out what is already true of us. What's in us, Jesus says? Here's what's in us. Out of the heart of man, women, you're lumped in with us here, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, 
deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And I'm going to put a little emphasis here. That's what defiles a person. It's not seeing this thing out here and goes, oh, that's when it started for me. No, that thing out here just lit on fire something that already exists in us. All sin, excuse me, all Satan, all the world, all temptation can do is awaken and draw out of us what's already in our core. And, and, and so if you resonate with these religious leaders, maybe you've been brought up in a tradition that says if you just do this, if you just keep yourself separate from this, if you just follow these rules, if you just put up these boundaries, if you just put up these barriers, we'll see in a few weeks where Jesus says if your right hand causes you to sin, throw it out. You heard that verse before? There's a little bit, and, and I'll admit I read some sarcasm into Jesus at times, but I think it's there. Um, not projecting, ever. Um, there's a little bit of him that goes, like, if you cut off your right hand, are you really never going to sin again? If you, if you poke out your eye, is that really what caused you to sin? Like, so yeah, let's, let's, let's guard our hearts. But, but where does sin actually come from? It's not our hands or our eyes. Those things just incite what already exists deep within us. So if, if, if we're tempted to, to follow that pattern and go like our, our hope is in keeping the, cer- the sin germs out, relying on our actions to keep ourselves pure and ourself and our ability, that we're, we're putting our hope in something false. Our hope can't be based on ourself. It can't be based on our own inherent goodness. But our hope equally can't be found in the many tempting things out in the world. Again, friends and family and society and government, even religious traditions, they're all tempted. They all say, put your hope in me. Put your hope in me. Put your hope in me. I'll, I'll fix it. Do this and I'll fix it. Do that. They're all siren calls. They're all bad places to put our hope. They're going to let us down. I was reminded just even in preparing this and marinating on this last couple of weeks, the Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes, which is my favorite book in the Old Testament. The theme of Ecclesiastes is an author who has all the means on earth trying to find satisfaction in literally everything. Wine and women and relationships and wealth and conquering other folks and being moral and all this kind of stuff. And you know what the author of Ecclesiastes finds? The exact same thing as these religious leaders. When he looks inside of himself, he's let down. When he looks at other people, he's let down. When he looks at the pleasures of culture, he's let down. And so he says, all of this is just vapor. It's just vanity. So that's it. Everything on earth, including yourself, is hopeless. Hope in anything that says, hey, put your hope in me, will just lead us to anxiety, overwhelmed, exhaustion, and hopelessness. a lot of the message of this chapter. And I want us to just again draw us into the depths of it to feel that because that's not a common message we hear. Most messages we hear in whatever society, whatever realm, whatever domain is, yeah, do this, fix it. Do better. You can, you can do it. Try this. 
Is there an answer? Is there a hope? If you read Ecclesiastes, not really. But thankfully, we're a few thousand years past Ecclesiastes, and in the core of this chapter, what we see in the woman who's desperate for Jesus to do what she can't, and what you see in the blind man and his friends who are desperate to do what he can, the deaf man, excuse me, and his friends, you see that, yeah, there is, there is a source of hope. But there's only one source of hope. When literally all else fails, the same thing that was true then, the same thing that was frankly true for the religious leaders, but they didn't believe it, is still true today. And Jesus alone is hope. The religious leaders got it backwards. What comes out of us? Fear, anger, all the things in verse 21 and 22, all the things that lead to hopelessness and anxiety and overwhelm and exhaustion. But even more than Jesus' offer to the woman and the deaf man, what can come into you and offer you hope? Temptation can, to be clear, but it'll let you down. But the other thing that can come into you, again, what the religious leaders were saying is what, come in, what comes into you defiles you, but what Jesus says is there is one thing that can come into you and actually fix the defilement that already exists in you. God can come into us by the power of his spirit. I'll, I'll be honest, I really struggle with kind of the accept Jesus into your heart kind of language, but, but it fits so perfectly in, into today's theme. What is inside of us already defiles us, but there's something that can come in and do what the opposite of the religious leaders say. It can make everything right and pure and holy and hopeful. Jesus, for every situation, can fix and heal and restore and empower and comfort and redeem whatever brokenness is going on in your heart, whatever is going on in your life, and he'll meet you in the midst of it. In his life, he modeled this complete, unanxious, fully hopeful reliance on God the Father. In his death, Jesus offers to take every evil and sinful thing that exists in your heart, maybe even the stuff you haven't told anyone ever because you think it's too dark. In his resurrection, Jesus offers a full life and replaces that sin in your heart with his spirit who guides us to peace and redemption and dependence and hope. The point is that everything in us is truly what defiles us. We live in a world of sin and brokenness. But it's not just out here. It's in here. Anywhere but Jesus that we seek hope is going to let us down. But if we have the Spirit of God in us, then when everything else fails, Jesus remains steady. Jesus remains waiting, unmoving, more persistent than even the widow saying, I'm here, I'm here. I'm here, I'm here. Jesus is our true hope all the time. Is that good news? Is it hard to believe sometimes? The good news is that he's still there even when we have a hard time believing it. So as, as we enter into a, a time of communion, this is, this is some of what we declare to one another, um, that Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection is our hope. And so I just want to give you a minute um, before we take communion and, and just ponder can write this, you can share with someone, you can pray 
I mean, scribble on the, the paper in front of you, whatever, but just, just ask a couple questions. What's, what's the state of your heart right now? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? Is there anything that the Spirit of God is pricking in you? Maybe a, a question is, what's coming out of you that's defiling you? Even things that Jesus promised to take from you in his death and offers to take from you in his offer to make you righteous. Or maybe another way to phrase the same question is what, what alternate source of hope is currently letting you down that you need to put aside and replace with Jesus? Or what restoration, what redemption, what wholeness do you need to beg God for? What's going on in your heart? Just take a moment. Some of the good news that we declare in communion and remember in communion is that Jesus died and rose to overcome all the things that defile us all the sin, all the temptation, all the brokenness, all the evil that exists in our heart, Jesus, Jesus died and rose to overcome it. Some of what we declare in communion is that Jesus died and rose to forgive all of our sin, including the time not if but when we seek hope in other sources. There's no guilt, there's no shame, there's forgiveness there. Part of what we declare is that Jesus died and rose to replace the stuff that exists in our heart with his spirit. So by his broken body, which is represented by the bread, you're welcome to pick up a piece of bread and take it. And by his shed blood, which is represented by the juice or the wine, you're welcome to dip the bread in the juice or the wine. Jesus declares you full. Jesus offers you final hope. So take and dip and eat. And let's pray. Father God, thank you for being pure and holy. Thank you for sending your son who alone lived without any deceit, sin, or brokenness inside of him. Thank you for example, his example of a perfect life, and yet, Lord, it can be tempting at times to even feel guilty when we look at Jesus' life and just hear, you should be like him, because we can't, by our power. And so thank you for his death and his resurrection, by which all the things that exist in us that whole list of stuff we read earlier. Thank you that all those things are gone, can be gone, can be replaced by something better. Thank you, Jesus, for your death, for healing us more than just physically. Would you help us to, to know what it looks like, what we need to bring to you, what we need to ask you and beg you to do that we can't do? For myself, for my friends, I pray that you would help us stop hanging on to those things that I know I at least try to hang on to and be like, yeah, but I can probably fix this one, even though history tells me I can't. Thank you for doing what we can't do. Thanks for coming into us, offering to come into us. Purify, redeem, restore, and give us hope. It's in your son's name. Amen. As we start to sing again, if you have questions or want anything to be prayed for, I'll be in the back. I'll be happy to chat.
But will you stand as we sing?